The Bible is full of stories that are hard to believe. It's chock full of miracles, healings, talking animals, prophecy, these crazy things that happen in nature and over the world. And if you think about the story of the Bible and you wanted to start to list some of the things that are pretty amazing or hard to believe, it wouldn't take long for your piece of paper to be full. Uh, We're told about how the universe was created just by God speaking things into existence. And that, of course, within the first couple chapters, the first talking animal appears. We're told about how a child beat a giant in combat, how a man went to heaven in a chariot of fire. There are angels, demons, witches, sorcerers. People are raised from the dead. So many things happen in the Bible that should not happen and should not be able to happen, which means that on one hand, if you are reading the Bible and you want to believe it, there are things within it that are impossible that don't seem like they would be able to happen in any sort of circumstance. And not only are there people around us, again, you wouldn't have to look very far to find these people, that believe that the Bible in and of itself and all of these impossible things are dumb, but they also think that we're kind of stupid for believing in the things that we say we believe in when we read the Bible. And part of the reason why that is, I think, is because it is difficult as people to want a God who is so far beyond us that we can't necessarily grasp him. There's a a story that I love about a basketball player named Brian Scalabrini. Does anyone know who Brian Scalabrini is? That's right, you don't. He was this giant red-haired dude that played basketball, Uh, his longest tenure was with the Boston Celtics. And some of you know who Kobe Bryant is, right? Yeah, he's a little more famous than Brian Scalabrini. But Kobe Bryant was nicknamed the Black Mamba and uh, Brian Scalabrini was nicknamed the Red Mamba because of his red hair. That was the only similarity, you know, the nickname, the Mamba part was the only similarity he had with Kobe Bryant. So he was, but he was on all these really good teams, and so you saw him often. He'd get in at the end of games, and people would cheer, and it was this great thing. And so he retired from the NBA and went to some open gyms, just like at your average gym where there was a basketball court, and he was playing with people. And he walked into this gym one day, and everyone was like, oh, it's Brian Scalabrini. And no one was intimidated by him, except he's super big. So maybe there was some of that. And they all started to talk a little trash to Brian Scalabrini. And Brian Scalabrini looked at them and he said, I'm closer to LeBron James than you are to even being in the NBA. And they all laughed at him, like, whatever, bro. To then he then played a series of people one-on-one and destroyed each of them, just you know, just mercilessly beat them into the ground. And people left that day realizing a couple of things. Uh, Number one, they weren't as good as they thought they were, (laughs) right? And, And number two, when you are beat by one of what would be considered the least persons in this thing, you realize how good the rest of that is. Like, if this guy who hardly played 
is closer to LeBron James than you are to even being like in a development league, then the distance between those two things is pretty great. But what does it take for us to understand that distance? You know, what does it take for us to comprehend how far we are away from something? And what is the easiest thing for us to do? Oh, man, you know, if I trained for a thousand years or, you know, if I trained for a certain amount of time, I could at least get a tryout. I could at least do this or that. And, you know, I played basketball all the time growing up, and people would ask me, oh, did you play in college, to which I would politely laugh in their face. Because guess what? The difference between playing in high school and playing for a college program is also immense. That's also immense. And again, the easiest thing for us to do when, if we have experience in these areas, is to stand back and say, well, they're not that much better. Now, apply that to God. We have trouble with God because God operates outside all of the rules that apply to us. And therefore, in order to understand God, what do we do with him? Well, that's impossible because the laws of nature, or that can't happen because, you know, that's not how this works, or whatever it may be. And over and over again in the Bible story, people are pressed up against their understanding of the world and trying to comprehend a God who is above all of it. It's a lot to fathom, isn't it? And even we who have spent a lot of time studying this God, reading the Bible, seeing songs, praying to him, even we are pretty poor judges of how far away God actually is from us in terms of his godness, in terms of who he is and his ability and his power and his greatness. Today's story is one of those impossible, unbelievable stories. It's a story that is more than hard to believe. It, it's hard to conceive of the very idea of what we are going to read about today. It is spectacular in a way that we, we have nothing to compare it to. And, and let me tell you that people have tried over the years to explain the miracles that are in the Bible, such as when Jesus was walking on water, he was walking on rocks in the middle of the sea, because, you know, that's how it works. Lots of rocks right under the surface in the middle of the sea. Because it's easier to say that than it is to say Jesus walked on water. It's easier to find that explanation, and people have tried to explain this event and as impossible as it is, it is also foundational to understanding God and his desire to care for his people. So today, friends, we look at the parting of the Red Sea. If you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 13. Now, if you remember, uh, over the past few weeks, we've talked about the Passover. 
And we talked about how in the Passover, God sets forward a ritual for his people. It's a ritual based around their faith, that they believe that God is going to deliver them from slavery that very night. And so they prepare for this going, this leaving of slavery and going into their freedom. And on the other hand, you have what's happening with the plague, where the angel of death is coming over and killing the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but passing over the homes of the Israelites. So it's time for them to go. It's time for them to leave. So let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar or cloud, neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Okay, we are given some insight here in this very first section that is going to help us understand the rest of the story and beyond that. Uh, and beyond all that. So first of all, God has led, taken them on the, the less direct route to Canaan because if they took the direct route, there could be problems. So here's basically what they did. If they're going to Canaan over here, what's the best way to get there from here? You go straight across, right? And which way did God send them? South. It's an interesting choice, right? Um, so why did God choose, instead of going the fastest possible route to Canaan, to send them south? Well, he openly states that if they come across the Philistines, because that's Philistine country, what will the Philistines have? What's that? Iron chariots. Iron chariots. They will have an army. And if the people of Israel come up against an army... Are they going to be prepared for that? And he says, no. If we come across an army on our way, then they will be discouraged and they might want to go back to Egypt. Now, our response, as those who are comfortably sitting here in these chairs reading about this, is to say, well, what do they have to be afraid of? They have God on their side. And you know, we're not wrong in our assessment. But you know as well as I do that even though God is on our side, it does not mean that the obstacles in front of us become nothing. They are still there. And part of walking with God is figuring out how with the power of God we are going to get past those things that stand in our way. Yeah? And God looks at his people and he says, they're not ready. They're not ready to go into battle. They're not ready to have to fight even with me on their side. 
And as much as we might hate to admit it, but it's true, the obstacles that stand in front of us can have a faith-altering effect. I can't see how God is going to get me through this. And why do we say that? Because we don't see how God is going to get us through something. And if you faced those obstacles with the health with the help of God, you know that number 1 defeating those things never goes like you think it will. Right? And number two, that even though it is the almighty God on your side, that you still have to make a choice to go and to face whatever it is that might be in front of you. So God sees this in them. You know, in our relationship, it might be a little bit early for war. So he takes them south. Um, So the move takes them on the path of least resistance. And it, and it shows that God, interestingly enough, chooses to take into account all the things that are happening around us and inside of us instead of just pushing us forward into the path of the most resistance. Does that make sense? Which is a pretty incredible thing for God to do. He doesn't shove the Philistines in the Israelites' faces and be like, watch this. He doesn't do that. Why not? Can he? Of course he can. But he also knows what will happen to the people if he shoves them immediately into some sort of conflict, and God chooses not to do that. And and one might expect that God, with all the power that he has, would not back off from leading the people into any sort of situation. But God, we learn here, is not a steamroller. He is not a weapon of mass destruction. He pays attention to what is going on, and even though he can do this thing and have them go straight across, he chooses not to because that is not the kind of God he is. Even though he is all-powerful, even though he is great, he is taking into account his people and his creation. So the human situation makes a difference regarding God's decisions and the way that he makes. Because ultimately, look, he doesn't want to put his people in a position that they might not be able to follow him through. Does that make sense? At least not right away. I mean, faith is challenging enough without having to face something like that right away. So what God did uh, is, is pretty smart, though. He wants them to follow him, so he gives them these physical manifestations that they could use to guide them, which is what? Pillars, right? Pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, and he has these things going in front of them. Now, why is it a pillar? Why is it this big thing that goes way up in the air? So everyone can see it. So if anyone, think about this, if anyone is like, where are we going, where are we going, you know, this seems confusing, where are we going south, what do they have to do to orient themselves? Look at whatever and say, okay, well, we're going this way. And it is, it is a physical manifestation of how God is with them. And it's also really practical, because how many people did the Bible say have come out with them? 600,000 men 
So it is an enormous group of people. And so they followed God out of Egypt, and now they can see that God is in front of them in this weird, impossible way. It's the first GPS system in the history of the world. And such phenomenon impressed the fact of God's presence upon all the people's senses, not just their minds or their spirit. They can see it. They can feel the heat of the fire. They can feel the wind of the pillars. It's the whole person experiencing God in a way that they had not seen him yet before. So let me just pause here for a second to say, our God is really pretty remarkable. And not just in what he's capable of doing, those indescribable, impossible things, but in the way he chooses to lead us so that we can follow him. God didn't have to do this. He didn't have to put these pillars in front of them to help them travel. He chose to. He chose to. He could have just given a command and said, go that way. And how would that have worked? No, he said to go that way. No, I'm pretty sure he was pointing that direction. Right? He's a remarkable God. And since we know how much of the rest of the story goes with God and his people, it's that much more remarkable to know that God took these things into account when his people were getting to know him. Takes us to part two of this story. Um, what is God actually doing here? Let's look at uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi Hatharoth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he and his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Piharath, opposite Baal-Zaphon. Okay. So, what is God doing? Because didn't he just release them from slavery? You know, facilitate that? Yes. And didn't he just sort of get everyone away from the controlling hands of the Egyptians? Yes. Okay. So not only... And didn't he make them go south so that they wouldn't have to face enemies to the east. Yeah, that happened too. So what is going on here? Because 
he takes them on a path which actually does trap them. They are between the desert and the sea, and they are marching there on purpose. And Pharaoh first has his own come-to-Jesus moment. Now, it's difficult for us to understand this because the term that draws our attention within this story is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and caused this to happen, so it seems. And if you read the rest of the stuff around it, it's undeniable that God has both an objective and a plan in mind. He has a strategy. God has thought this out. And the narrative itself emphasizes the fact that God is doing all of these things on purpose. So God tells Moses to turn Israel back toward the sea near certain places of an unknown location. And this entails not a return to Egypt, but a different route on the wilderness side of the border. And the reason that the Bible tells us is so that Pharaoh would look at them and say, those dummies, look at them, marching right into this place where they're going to be trapped. We should go get them. Because Pharaoh realized as soon as, he, as they were gone that, oh wait, the entire economy does depend on these, this million person group and what were we thinking when we let them go pharaoh has already forgotten what everything would be the general term for it yes but specifically the death of all the firstborn children it's already out of his mind and he says we should go get them now it's interesting to note that pharaoh within the narrative determines these things before God hardens his heart, which is in line with how we have seen this thing operate the whole time. Not that God is reaching in and making it impossible for Pharaoh to do otherwise, but that God almost releases him, doesn't do anything to change his mind, and allows him to take the course that he wants to take. So God, again, takes into account all of the dynamics of the situation, including the arrogance, pride, and stubbornness of Pharaoh. And he says, you know what we should do? Let's go this way. Let's make it look like this is happening. Now, here's the thing. From a human point of view, are they walking into a trap? Yes. Is there any other way to see it? No. Can the Israelites, do they understand that, they, that this is not a trap that they're walking into? No. They're just following the fire in the cloud. Because no one except for God understands what the way out is. So they follow him to this place. And to a degree, they are waiting for the Egyptians to come. And does it work? Of course it works. Pharaoh sees that he has a geographical advantage, and he cannot help but rush to get his army ready to go and chase down the Israelites. And his army is, in fact, an army, and it's massive. And this, it's an interesting note that they put in there. 600 of the best chariots. Oh, and all the other ones. 
I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean, but obviously, you know, there are some, some that are built heavier for war, and then there's all of these other ones. And these are trained soldiers on each one. And the truth of the matter is, this is not going to be a battle. Wink, wink. Because there is no way that the Israelite slaves could beat the Egyptian army. There are a bunch of farmers and laborers. It's not going to be a battle. It's going to be a slaughter, and they are going to drag the Israelites back to Egypt. And there is no way that anyone looking at this situation can think anything different. Anything different is outside the realm of possibility, and that is precisely the point. This is not a haphazard venture. God wants to prove something. And what is it that he wants to prove? Well, on the most basic level, he wants to prove that he is God, capital G. That there is no God like him, that there is no one who can stand against him. But secondly, God chooses to make an example of Pharaoh and his army. Why? He tells us in the, in the passage, but why? Because by defeating one of the most powerful armies on earth at the time, without fighting, he will show the world that he is God. Because how can you deny that about him? If this happens, it's, it's impossible. It, it answers so many questions. So God will harden Pharaoh's heart so that the planned pursuit of the Israelites will be intensified. And the object is to bring the Egyptians to this place so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians learn a lesson. But every neighboring country, everyone who knows of the might of the Egyptians will hear the story about how they fell. And the only conclusion that they can come to is God, big G God, must be on the side of the Israelites. And interesting note as you read through the story, and the way the story is told, the Egyptians are portrayed as moving from this frenzied activity into the stillness of what happens to them as the waves crash down on them. And the Israelites move from fear and doubt to stillness and faith and worship. In other words, the whole narrative is moving to a point where everyone knows who God is. And for those who are the people of God, it becomes a profound moment of worship. And for those who are on the opposite side of the people of God, becomes a moment that they cannot do anything about. It's the Titanic going down, and there's nothing that can be done about it. So, of course, the Egyptians caught up with the Israelites just outside the Red Sea, which takes us to part three. It's not as bad as it looks. Verses 10 through 14 of chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, and make note of this, because you're going to hear this more than once. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone 
let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Okay. Israel is not an army. Again, they're laborers, they're farmers. So would the Israelites have had any proper weapons to fight against the Egyptian army? We don't know, but it's doubtful. I, I've heard that slave owners didn't give their slaves weapons. And I haven't totally researched the why, but I'll get to that at some point. So, of course, just like God knew would happen, the people look out and they see the army of their oppressors in full force, all these horses, all these chariots, making their way across the desert toward them. And I can only imagine that there's this enormous dust cloud that they see coming closer. And then they hear the horses. They hear the chariots. And they look at this coming and they say, Dear God, what have you done to us? Remember when we were back in Egypt, just living peaceful lives? Remember what that was like? And we told you, we told you that we didn't want to do this. And you made us. And in one of my favorite lines of the story, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us somewhere where there could be more graves? Like, what is the matter with you people? They freak out, and they tend to be dramatic in these situations. So wouldn't you know it, God was right. Once they faced opposition and saw it coming, how did they react? They lost their minds. They lost their nerve. And as God said earlier, they immediately wanted to do what? Leave the adventure that God was calling them on and go back to what felt like safety in slavery for the rest of their lives. To be fair to the Israelites, this is a powerful representation of the, of the country rather that has kept them down for generations. Like, it's interesting that God points out not going to see the Philistines, but he invites a much more powerful army to come. And the people freak out and they look at this and they say, there's nothing good that can come with this, from this. This is like dad pulling out his belt. It's a, it's a bad sign when that happens. But it tells us something really important. And it tells us this, that Egypt is not the only group that is going to learn a lesson in this story. Because you know who really needs to learn something? It's the people themselves, those who are following God. They need to learn something that they do not yet understand. And it is not until this happens that they are able to grasp what is going on here. And we can argue all day about whether they should have known, weren't the plagues enough, and it doesn't matter what the answer is because it was not enough. It wasn't. 
They went right back to a mindset of fear. And even though God had done great things, it was not enough yet to undo what their lives had been like. And they were afraid, and for good reason, because of their history. And then it makes me think, haven't you know, we been afraid of the enemy that sits right in front of us, even if God has defeated our enemies before? So God is about to show them that he is capable of much more than the Egyptian army. This is a showdown between a visible force in power on earth and God. And all signs at this point, as the Israelites see it, seem to point to Egypt winning this thing. And he tells them, don't worry about it. Be still. I've never been to war. Um, Be still seems like an odd command. Just in general. You know, I I can imagine scenarios in which being still would be really very important. But he tells them to be still. What is he telling them when he says that? What's his point? Trust me? Yeah. Think about it this way. You don't have to do anything. You're worried about these people coming. You don't have to do anything. Just be still and see what it means to have me on your side. It's a, it's a word calling for silence, for patient, patience and faith, which takes us to part four. This is a necessary step. Verses 15 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? I love this. I love the tone. Let's read it with the right tone here. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And I love how God in this section makes it seem like Moses wasn't seeing the obvious answer. I don't know what your problem is. Why don't you just turn around, wave your hand over the sea, and then walk through on dry land? Why didn't I think of that? Here I was thinking we were marching to certain death, and it turns out we're not. So God, into this story, interjects the absolutely impossible into a story that is already fairly fantastic. And we learn something valuable here. And that is this, if you are going to follow God wherever he might take you, it takes more than just following what you can see, than trailing the fire or the clouds. That's the easiest possible manifestation of following God. Oh, oh, he's right there, and that's where I'm going to go. 
But if you are going to follow God, you have to learn to look at the world differently. Because what you see as a limitation falls before God. But it will never have the chance to fall if you don't follow him into the impossible path. If the Israelites, if Moses had said, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life, right? If he had acted in this way, I I mean, something we fail to realize is that the Israelite people could have very easily gone back into slavery. That is... That is the most logical answer in looking at this. But again, nobody on earth at this time truly understood what it meant for God to be on someone's side. They had no context for this. A nation moving across out of slavery, being chased by an army, there is nothing that compares to this, but God was about to show him. And so God says, man, Moses, just just do the impossible. And see what happens. Which leads us to part five. Undeniable. Verses 19 through 22. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Okay. So some things to note here. Number one, the angel of God moves and puts himself between Egypt and Israel, along with the pillar that comes. And then it's bright as day on one side and dark as can be on the other. If you were Egypt, what would you be thinking at this point? I, you know, I think I left my garage door open. I, I, I think I need to go check on that. You are put into this position where, where two manifestations of God, well, three really, sit right in front of you. You're in the dark, staring at an angel. And you think, man, tomorrow we're going to get those Israelites. It doesn't make any sense, does it? So why this big demonstration well it turns out this is just the appetizer and god i think in a very important moment keeps them safe while the enemy is right there i mean that's a moment where israel has to sit and trust and say god is right there we're going to be okay at least for tonight and moses he waves his arm over the red sea and all night The wind is blown so that by the time morning comes around, the Israelites could walk through walls of water on the right and left completely on dry ground. There's a lot of representations of what this looks like. But no matter matter what the representation, 
The very idea of this is crazy. And you talk to people, you know, about this moment, and there's always a question that comes first. So how did the water stay up on both sides? Because I don't know if you've been around water, um, but it doesn't do this on its own. And I've never seen this happen. So I've heard explanations like, well, maybe there was a really cold wind that blew in and parts of uh, the sea froze. And they, you know, I, I've heard all, because this, this makes no sense. Guys, it makes no sense. And it's not supposed to. It's not supposed to make sense. Because it is impossible. And there are people that will gladly tell you it is impossible, and that is the point. The impossible becomes possible when God is working for you and with you. And God brought them to this very point so that he could do the impossible. And so that finally they can see, you know what? Maybe leaving Egypt wasn't such a bad idea after all. Maybe this God who is taking to this place that he's promised us is actually going to get there. And so this impossible idea becomes a representation of freedom and new life. They just have to walk across. Leave their oppressors behind and go into the future that God has for them. And if God can do this in the face of their greatest enemy, then they have to get out of the other side thinking, Huh, that was interesting. I wonder what else God can do. Which takes us, lastly, to part six. Verses 23 through 31. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. Again, a moment I don't understand. Right? But we know that Pharaoh is motivated, and we know that God has, in some ways, maybe even increased his motivation. And so... The people go through, and the angel and the pillar are gone, and they are looking at a parted sea. And they say, look, the ground is dry. Let's go in after them. And they do. They follow them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and clouded the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. Good thinking. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So God does something. We said he wanted to make a point, right? And 
the Egyptian army follows them in, and they get, let's just say roughly for our imagination, they get about halfway out, and all of a sudden, everything stops working. Wheels are falling off, horses are refusing to go forward, and they're in the middle of these walls of water, and I bet those walls looked really big at that point. And some of them look around, they're not moving forward, they're standing in the middle of a parted sea, and they say, maybe we should turn around. This seems kind of like a bad idea. It seems like the Lord is fighting for them. You know why it seemed that way? Because he was. And all of a sudden, these people realize, I immediately regret this decision to be in the middle of this situation, standing against God. And God, once all the people are through, has Moses turn his arm back, and the Egyptians are drowned. So much so, so many so, that they're washing up on the shore at the feet of the Israelites. It's a bit much, isn't it? No. Because, while we said, you know, that God wanted to make a point to the whole world about who he is. He needs Israel to see their enemy destroyed. He doesn't need to see them go back home, right? He doesn't need them to see that. He needs them to see the body of their enemy that was coming after him, the bodies right there in front of them. He needs to see that he didn't just help them escape. He helped them win. So that the direct result of this is everyone was, they feared God. Look at that, that term this way. It's more like, oh man, this is real. Like, this is real, and they said that they would follow him and have faith in him. There's a, there's a phrase that's repeated a lot through the Bible, through the prophets, through all these other things, and this phrase is, then they will know. And, and it's used about the enemies of God, it's used about the people of God, it's used in all different sorts of scenarios. Then they will know. Then they will know that I am God. Once this happens, then they will see that I am the Holy One. Once this happens, they will know that I am the Lord. And what did everyone know at this point? The Israelites knew that the God of the universe was with them, the Egyptians knew that the God of the Israelites was infinitely more powerful than anything they had to offer. And the world knew that God took out one of the most powerful armies on earth on behalf of a nation of slaves. That there is nothing that this God can't do. It's hard, guys, to look at the impossible, even from this side, and believing in God and believing that these things happened. It's challenging. It's challenging. Because God does the impossible. God does the unthinkable. But if we step back from this one moment for just a second, we recognize that God didn't stop doing the impossible or unthinkable there. You know, we're here today because God did the impossible and unthinkable. Corinthians says it this way, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the, ri- of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Look, I can't explain to you how and why God does all the things that he does. And I admit that stories like the parting of the Red Sea or all these things are pretty incredible stories. But at the core of all of these questions is God. And who is he? Who is he? And the thing that's incredible to me is that there are so many times where we almost ask for the plain and ordinary God. The God who works under the same restrictions we do. The God who, you know, makes decisions we would make. That helps our life make sense instead of calling us to something that we don't understand. It's incredible to think we would almost feel more comfortable exchanging a God who can do anything with a God who is more like us. But the message of all of this is that God has continued to do the incredible, the impossible. And you know there are people that are going to look at Christians who believe in Jesus and say, I am too smart to believe in Jesus. I am too smart to believe that someone was raised from the dead. Death's final, dude. You don't come back from that. And you are a fool. You are a fool for believing that this is possible. Well, if we would allow ourselves to be fools, then God will show us over and over again how the impossible doesn't stand against him. Amen?